0: with me to Hebrews chapter six, Hebrews chapter six. We're going to be looking at, verses 13 through 20, 13 through 20. by way of context, last week we began to look at and see where the writer, the, the preacher, the author. You wonder why I say preacher, because he's going to conclude the book there in chapter 13 saying he's given us a a brief word of exhortation. That's why most folks believe that this is a sermon, a a sermon of the early church that was given to a group of struggling believers. But last week he began by establishing the, the grounds of Christian assurance, and today He's going to instruct us and say and remind us that the ultimate ground, the ground zero of our assurance, is the word of God itself. What he has said and what he has done in the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, as the hymn writer has said, what more can he say than to you he has said, to you who For Jesus have fled. So let's listen now as I read. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 9. I'll read through verse 20. Again, this is God's word. Verse 8, he's been speaking of the warning about those who are in danger of falling away, but he is sure of better things than those he's addressing. So let's listen now, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and through patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong or powerful encouragement to hold fast or to seize to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek thus far the reading of God's holy infallible word let us pray and ask this blessing our father we thank you for your holy word we thank you that all that we need for life and godliness is contained in this word Oh, Lord, we believe, help or unbelief, we pray now that we would believe, we would be those who hear the Word of God and believe it, that, Lord, not only have you given us your promise, you've given us your oath, that every good and perfect thing, every promise ever made is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, that we would hold fast to that, that that would be the ground of our assurance, that would be the rock, the anchor that moors us into that great comfort of the saints, that comfort of assurance that Jesus Christ is mine and I am his. Oh, Father, may that testimony, may that credo be true of each one under my voice this day. May you be glorified. May we make much of you. May you bless the meditation of our heart and the words of my mouth and take my poor, weak efforts and bring forth a harvest of righteousness, 30, 60, 100-fold. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the most frequently asked questions that a pastor gets is, how can I have assurance that I'm truly saved? I often feel saved at times, we say, we've had people say to me, but sometimes I don't. Is it possible to know that one is saved? Is it possible to know with the assurance that God promises His children in the Holy Spirit to know that I'm His and He is mine? Last week, we began to look at how the preacher felt of better things regarding those whom he's addressing, his readers, things that belong to salvation. Salvation. The preacher was sure because he, he noticed and he anchored his confidence in what he saw in those believers to whom he's addressing. He, he saw how they loved the name of God. That they rejoiced in the name of the triune God, the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He also saw what flowed out of that love for God which was a love for one another, and how that love manifested itself in their service one to another. And then he exhorted them not to grow weary in well-doing, but to show the, the same earnestness that they might grow in the full assurance of hope until the very end. Therefore, by showing this same diligence, this effort, They might throw off sluggishness and dullness and laziness. He tells us in verse 12, by imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Beginning here in verse 13, as we're going to look this morning, 13 through 20, we see that the Christian need look no further to the example of the father of the faithful, that is, Abraham himself. The preacher's purpose is to persuade us and to persuade his readers that in all the ups and downs in the Christian life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the laughter, the the sorrow, the disappointment, that the living God can be trusted, that he can be trusted to keep his holy word to us. So this morning, let's look at this text under these two simple headings. First, an example to imitate. Right? He's just told us to imitate those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promises. Who are we to imitate? Is there an example for us in the word of God? Is there a paradigm by which we can learn to imitate and to follow. And then secondly, an assurance to, to bank on. So an, an example to imitate and an assurance to back on, bank on. So first, an example. Who better to learn from and to imitate than Abraham? Paul says about Abraham that he is the, the father of all who believe. In many ways, Abraham, I would argue, is the the archetypal saint. He's the archetypal believer. That his life, with all of its ups and its downs, all of its imperfections, is the example that we are to imitate. Not because he was by any means perfect, but rather through his faithful example we learn what the obedience of faith and perseverance looks like, right? Through imitation, through example, we learn. That's how we learn, right? Pedagogically, pedagogically, right? Through example, we learn what we are to do and how we are to believe. And that's exactly what these struggling and weary Christians here in Hebrews were in need of. You see, they were struggling. They were thinking about calling it quits, because the persecution outside of the church was intensifying. The culture was growing more and more ungodly and more antagonistic to Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And these folks were thinking about going back to the safety of the Judaism that they had left and come out of. Now they're retreating back and he's warning them, don't do that. Don't give up. Perseverance is the, is the fruit of... Of one who's truly saved. Right? We know this. We've seen this. Empirically in our own lives. Manifested evidence. We've seen it. It's not how one begins. The Christian life is it's not a hundred meters. It's a marathon. And for some of us it might mean two or three marathons. Or maybe even like Job. A marathon that never ends. Seemingly. But these believers needed to be reminded of the example of Abraham. So let's just review just for a moment. Let's step back and think about Abraham. Because I think if we don't understand what the author is saying here, we're going to misapply the text to ourselves. Saints, it was with Abraham that the living God came and established his covenant there in Genesis 12. Remember when Abraham was worshiping the moon and the sun? He was living in the Ur of Chaldees, and God came to him, called him out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he said to Abraham, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, making your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Moses tells us that Abraham and Sarah, his barren wife, set out for the land of promise. They were childless and they lived as pilgrims. And after ten years of waiting on God and still childless and very discouraged, Abraham began to grow restless. You know, because it's difficult waiting on God. Patience (laughs) isn't one of my virtues, and it isn't the virtue of most sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Began to complain, and he began to speculate. "Well, Well, maybe... Eliezer will be the heir. I'm, I'm childless. But God heard Abraham's complaint and he took Abraham, his friend, because that's what the Word of God says about Abraham. He took him outside into the theater of creation and he told his friend to look up to the sky and number the stars if he could. Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And we're told that Abraham believed God. God preached a sermon with a promise. And we're told that Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God then sealed that promise with the cutting of the covenant, right? Where God alone passed through the animals. All the while Abraham slept. God said to Abraham, let it be to me like these animals if I do not fulfill my promise. But you know what happened? Time began to tick away again. Twelve years later, still childless and by no means perfect. And though he sought to secure the promise through the flesh with with Hagar, remember that, that brilliant idea of Sarah? It says, why don't you take Hagar? And bring about the, the promise of God through the works of the flesh. There was Ishmael. But even after that, God comes a year later, as it were, and, and once again in Genesis 17, he reaffirms the promise of a son born not of the flesh, but by divine grace through Sarah. And giving Abraham the visible sign of a covenant, right? Again, coming in and not only preaching to Abraham, but giving him now a sign, the sign of circumcision. And all through Abraham's life, despite his weaknesses and imperfections of his faith, God was constantly encouraging Abraham, his friend, to persevere and to hold fast to the good confession of faith. Which each, with each failure, with each trial, with each disappointment... Abraham was learning, and he was growing, and he was being sanctified. And you know what he was growing in? He was growing in the knowledge of the goodness of God's heart, that God loves his people. That Abraham, you are my dear friend. You are my son. And though your sins are many, Abraham, my mercy is more. Where your sins have abounded, my grace is superabounded. Your failure is great, but I'm greater still. You see, that's what he wanted Abraham to learn. That's what he wants his children to learn. Come more childlike, not childish, right? But childlike, humble, childlike, dependent, faith, very vanilla. It walks with God. God said it. I believe it. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. You see. But that promise, you see, that's all I need. It's the oxygen in my room. It's everything to me. It's my meat and drink, his promise. You see, it's Abraham's example of patient endurance that the preacher here in Hebrews, wants us to learn from. Like Abraham, our our patient endurance will be rewarded with salvation. And we're told in verse 15 that Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And we know from Genesis 21, 25 years after the promise was first given in Genesis 12, the son of promise, Isaac, laughter himself, was born. Why was he called laughter? Because it was so incredible. Who but God could do this? Sarah. Her womb was like a raisin. She's 90 years old. Her years of giving birth to children are way overdue. She's, go, she's, she's done. And Abraham himself, 100. But yet God gave Abraham laughter. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Laughter. It's kind of like music in some ways, right? Because because laughter like music, like song, gets beyond prose. Some things are just too great and too marvelous to be spoken of. They must be sung. They must be laughed at. Right? And that's exactly what happens. But even after the child of promise was born, the testing of Abraham's faith was not over. The, the greatest test was yet to come. Right? Hebrews 6:13 to 15 alludes to this test from Genesis 22 that Mr. Hutton read for us. We're told there that after these things, after all the waiting, After the the covenant's been cut, after the, the sign of circumcision, after the fulfillment of the very promise was given, we're told after these things, God tested Abraham. He's a testing God. He tests the fidelity of his people. You say you love me? Okay. Let's see. So God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son, you know, you know, the one you've waited for twenty-five years, the one through whom I told you the promise would be realized, and go and sacrifice him on the mountain of which I shall tell you. And verse three tells us exactly what living, saving, vanilla faith does. Verse three of Genesis twenty-two. Abraham arose the next morning. He just did it in obedience to the word, not knowing how God was going to bring about this deliverance, but just knowing that he was. He believed God. And God spared Isaac by providing the, the ram caught in the thicket. And, and Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And, and yet again, God came and renewed his promise to Abraham yet again, reinforcing it with an oath. Genesis twenty two sixteen to 17 "...by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, not withholding your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, my friend Abraham." And multiply your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. And here in Hebrews 6.14, the preacher cites this exact verse. His point here is to assure Abraham and us of the validity of God's promise. It's as if God is coming to his people saying, yes, I know you're struggling. I know you get tired of waiting. Wondering if God's promise will come to pass. Even thinking to yourself, in your heart of hearts, there you never voice it. give verbal recognition to it. Does God care? Does God see? This promise seems so long in coming. Where is the living God? You see You see, the preacher's point is that despite all the reasons to doubt God's word, right the world, the flesh and the devil. Abraham, through patient endurance and perfect faith, received the promise. You see, church, let Abraham's example be the one you imitate and follow. Press on this morning, is my word to you. Seize the promise, seize it. Hold fast to it. Don't abandon the good confession that you made, don't grow weary in well doing. Your labor in Christ is not in vain. A thousand years from now, you will not be growing weary. And you will think like Paul, and maybe even today think like Paul, these light and momentary afflictions <laughs> don't compare to the weight of glory. You see, and yet, and while Abraham did receive his promised son, Isaac, we're told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was still looking for the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham died in faith not having received the things promised. He he saw them and he greeted them from afar. He saw that which is invisible through the eyes of faith. Do you see the living God this morning with the eyes of faith? Are you holding fast? Have you seized the promise? even as he seized you in Jesus Christ. Beloved, Abraham is the the pilgrim, the archetypal saint, the one in whose example we can imitate, who through faith and patience endured to the end. The whole Christian life is about that. Patient endurance by faith. Secondly, the second point, An assurance to to bank on. A certainty to bank on. An assurance to bank on. Beloved, as if God's promise needed reinforcement, we're told that God sealed the promise with an oath. What? Now just let that sit there for a minute. God comes and gives a promise. He cannot lie. He's not a man that he should. He can. He cannot. There are things that God cannot do. God cannot betray his character. He cannot lie. But he gave an oath to to banish all doubt in the hearts of his people. Verses 17 to 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things. Well, what are the two unchangeable things? The promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There are three things that I want us to notice, and then three metaphors that the writer gives us as he paints with words that we might understand something of this great hope, this great assurance of God. First thing I want you to notice is this. By swearing by himself, God cemented the promise. God cemented the promise when he took an oath. In court, when men swear, they they typically often swear by something greater or by someone greater than Themself, right? You go before the Commonwealth Court in Virginia, state of Virginia, sir, uh, state or federal. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help you God? Right? You, you take this oath. You, you, take, you swear by that which is greater. Beloved, because there is nothing nor anyone greater than God, God swore by himself. Marinate in that for a minute. Let that just sit in you for a little bit. Just sit in it, like a cool body of water on a hot August day. Let's just cool you down. Just sit in that. God put his own name on the line, he swore by himself. He so swore, he swore to fulfill the promise to Abraham. The ultimate seal and surety sealed by these two unchangeable things, his, his word, his promise, and now his oath. Right, church, as the hymn writer says, what more can he say? Hymn 94 in the Trinity Hymnal. How firm a foundation! What more can he say than to you he hath said? Right? We, 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 as kids, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. The living God's coming, swearing by the only thing he can swear by. The fact that he would swear is amazing. But the only thing he can swear by is himself. You see, it's his promise and oath that, that God gives us as an encouragement. It's this promise and oath that are, that are stronger than the guilty conscience this morning. It's this promise and oath that are are stronger than your weak heart. It's stronger than any trial that you're going through or will go through. So that leads to to the second point. Not only has God cemented his promise with this oath, the second question we must ask or the question we must ask is, why would God do this? Right? That's a good question. Kids, why would God do this? Why would he do it? Isn't God's word sufficient? So why did he do it? We're told there in verse 17, look what the word of God says. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. God did it, beloved, because he wanted Abraham to be certain. He wanted to banish all doubt that he would bring to pass what he promised Abraham. You see, God swears not because his word is in doubt. No, beloved, his word is not in doubt. You know who's in doubt? I'm in doubt. You're in doubt. Who is this living God? Who swears by himself. God did it to accommodate himself to the weakness of Abraham's faith. That Abraham's faith, that that your faith might not rest in faith. Right, so many of this morning, many of you this morning, are resting your assurance in your faith. Faith cannot save you. Faith is the instrument that takes hold of the one who can, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't rest in your faith. You don't need mighty faith. You just need a mighty object of faith, and you have one in Jesus Christ. Abraham's faith at times was incredibly weak and imperfect. He faced enemies within and without, but he persevered, holding fast to the God who cannot lie, the God who seals his promise with an oath. To this God, through all Abraham's failures, did not let go of him. And we're told in Hebrews eleven nineteen 19, as it reflects on what Abraham did at the Mount Moriah when God told him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. That's why he gets to the point even raising the knife in the air, getting ready to slam it into the sternum of little Isaac. I don't understand. I don't need to understand. But your promise, your covenant, your oath is all that I need. All is darkness to me. All is a cave. All is mystery to me. All is hopeless. But I have thy word, O God. I have your promise. And as he was getting ready to, to take that knife and to slam it down into the chest of little Isaac, his friend called. Abraham. Abraham, my friend. I now know that you love me. You have fidelity in your heart because I put it there. I preached it into that heart 25 years ago when I first called you effectually. You walk in the obedience of faith because I worked a will within you, Abraham, to please me. That you might be a trophy of grace. You see, saints... This same promise, though, for us, or rather, this same promise and oath is yours. How can you say that? Well, I can say that because I say it on the authority of the Word of God. In Jesus Christ, you know what you are? You're Abraham's heirs. Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, you see. That leads to the third thing I want us to notice. Third, church, in Jesus Christ, we are those stars. You know those stars that he looked at in the theater of God there in Genesis 15? When, you know, here's Abraham looking down, Eliezer, maybe he'll do I'll take my complaint to God. God tells him to look up to those stars. You know who he saw? He saw you. He saw me. We are those stars that Abraham Beheld there in Genesis 15. By faith in Christ, we are Abraham's descendants. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Galatians 3.29. Heirs according to the promise. You see, in Jesus Christ, Abraham's seed, beloved, we have redemption, full and free. We have forgiveness of sin. We have imputed Righteousness. We have adoption, we have sanctification, and beloved, you can be sure of your salvation this morning because your faith in Abraham see Jesus Christ, all the promises of God to you are yes and amen. So the preacher here is marshaling his evidence. Why? Why does the preacher do this? Because he longs and loves those people that sit bef- sits before him. So he takes his pen into his hand in the power of the Holy Spirit and he says, Do not lose heart. Do not be discouraged. Look to his promise. Look to his oath. Look to his provision in Abraham's seed for you as heirs of the promise in Jesus Christ. And look to Abraham to imitate as the example who through patient endurance persevered. And as if the preacher could say no more, he gives even three more metaphors. You know why? You know why he does this? Because he, he wants to nail the truth of God's faithfulness into the hearts of the people because he knows their hearts are like his heart. So, notice what he does here. He gives us three metaphors to, to nail this promise, this covenant God's promise into our hearts a refuge, an anchor, and a forerunner. First, a refuge. Notice the preacher describes those in verse 18 as those who have fled to, or fled to, for refuge in God. In Numbers 35, we're told that there was this provision in the book of Moses, Numbers 35. Where God created cities of refuge for those who accidentally killed another in the camp of Israel. And while in the city, this person, the accused, were, were flee from the wrath of the accusers until their case could be adjudicated and heard at the court. Beloved, we who have fled from the coming wrath of God have found Jesus to be what? this city of refuge. He is the city of refuge. Jesus himself is this rock of safety. But not only do we flee from the wrath, right? We, we flee... To the hope set before us, right? So many of us this morning, we're thinking, well, we think of of salvation strictly in justification terms. And we don't think of the, the whole orbit of salvation, right? Somehow we just think it's just this one simple transaction, and it is to a degree. Yet you're justified in time and space by an act of God's free grace. You cannot be unjustified. And yet those he justifies, he also sanctifies, So he saves you from the wrath to come, but he saves you for the city to come as well. He calls you to flee from the the city of destruction, as he did Pilgrim, and to flee to the celestial city, the city that yet remains, the rest that yet remains. You see what I'm saying? It's a a marathon. It's It's a walk with God. It's a lifestyle with God. And notice what he says. Why do we do this? Because verse 18, we have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope before us. A, a hope that enters into this holy holy place, the, the inner place behind the curtain. But not only is it a refuge, notice it's secondly an anchor. And what is the metaphor of an anchor stress? The, the certainty of God's promise. Verse 19, we have this, what is the antecedent? We have this promise and this oath as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And did you notice this? Most anchors, when you, you, you lay anchor, you're throwing the anchor out of the ship into the bottom of the sea, right? Because you want it to moor into the, whatever it is, the, the, the bottom of the seafloor. But notice this anchor, Notice that this anchor doesn't go down. Where does it go? It goes up. It's like the cord of salvation is running up to this anchor that's anchored into the very throne of God. In his very promise, in his, his very oath. What more can he say than to you he has said? You see, that's where that hymn comes from. Because the author of the hymn is meditating on these great truths. And he's seeing this this anchor that holds in heaven behind the curtain. You see, our anchor is not anchored in the instability of the world. But the hope we have is anchored in the unchangeable character of our God and His promise and oath. It's anchored in heaven where Christ is our righteousness. And He is sure and steadfast. And then thirdly... Beloved, our anchor holds because we're told in verse 20, notice what it says in God's holy word. You need to have God's word up. Look what it says. Jesus, our forerunner, has gone on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When's the last time you heard about Melchizedek? Chapter 5, verse 10. Remember, he's speaking there in chapter 5, verse 10. About the priesthood of Christ, and he longs for them to grow in their understanding of this knowledge regarding Melchizedek, but he has to have this little interruption because they're not mature enough. They've grown too lazy, lethargic, dull of hearing. So he has to do this little excursus, as it were, to exhort them, to warn them, to hold fast. Now he's getting ready to resume that subject again, he's come full circle. Right, He's had this little parenthetical section from 511 to where he is right now, 620. But it's now getting ready to stop. And he's going to go into chapter 7. He's going to speak all about this Melchizedek figure, this mysterious figure from the Old Testament. But notice what he says here. He says Jesus is our forerunner. I've got to tell you this about this term. Forerunner is a nautical term. Large ships in ancient times, were often cut off from the safety of the harbor by sandbars. So they had to wait for the tide to come in before the, the large ship could, could sail into the harbor. Now remember, there's no industrial engine. There's no, no petroleum products. There's nothing at this time. All they have is the wind, right? So they couldn't get in and dare not go on that sandbar and crash the ship, wreck the ship, right? They had to wait for the tide to come in. But while they waited, we know that a a lighter vessel would come from the harbor. This lighter vessel was called, you know what, a forerunner. A forerunner, this little ship, would go out to that big ship, kids, and it would get the anchor of that big ship. You know what it would do? It'd take that big anchor of that big ship and take it all the way back into the harbor with that line still going to the big ship saints from that moment on the larger ship would be safe from every gale and storm although it would have to wait for the high tide before it could enter the harbor it was safe because it had this rope to the forerunner who'd already gone before it so its destination was secure do you see what he's saying jesus is that smaller vessel who's gone into heaven who's who's taken our anchor the anchor of his word and his promise, and he sunk it deep into the very throne room of God, the very altar of God, where God is sworn by his own name, because there was nothing greater to swear by, for he's not a man that he should lie. What more can he say than to you he has said? If you cannot preach this text, you cannot preach any text of the word of God. Beloved Christ, our forerunner, has gone before us. He's entered heaven itself. He's our pledge that one day we too will arrive in heaven in the very presence of God. You see, nothing can sever that rope of salvation to our forerunner. No storm, no cancer, no car wreck, no tribulation, no distress, no persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword. No sin that you will commit will sever you from that. He is greater than all your sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a friend. What an encouragement, church. Beloved, as Abraham's heirs, as fellow pilgrims in this sinful and broken world, this is our only hope, and this morning I ask you, if you're visiting this morning and you're not a professing member in good standing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't made a profession of faith to take Jesus to be your anchor, refuge, and forerunner, why not? Why not? What are you waiting on? He is the only anchor that ascends to heaven. He's the only anchor that holds. You see, Hebrews six thirteen to 20 is given that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us and through the unchangeable purpose of God. So instead of looking within or to the circumstances without, look to your anchor in heaven, Jesus Christ, this morning. Seize him. Take this other hymn. There's so many hymns that have come from this text. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and say Is he yours this morning? Are you looking to your faith to save you? You're going to be disappointed. Look to the anchor the refuge, the forerunner, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your holy word. Lord, you've, you've given us everything we need. But we are so dull of heart and so slow of spirit to believe these things. Oh, Lord, we long to believe them more. We long to grow up in Jesus Christ. We don't want to be dull. We don't want to be sluggish. We don't, don't want to be lazy. Lord, you've called us to this marathon of the, of the Christian life, and you've given us examples to imitate, and no greater example than Abraham himself, who held fast to you, even as you held fast to your friend Abraham. And not only that, you've given us your oath and your promise, these two unchangeable things, anchored in your very character and your very name, secured for us by the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, Oh, Father, bless us, we pray. Grant us faith to grow and to grow up as we grow down in self-reliance and grow up in dependence on Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.